Whatever your translation is, follow along with me. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the collecting or into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they, they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You may be seated. This is the final sermon in this series called 360 Degree Giving. And what I've tried to do in this series is to help us look at giving the way that the gospel does, the way that the gospel moves us to open our hearts to those who are in need and to give. And to give cheerfully and to give generously, to give vertically, to give forward, to give downward, to give inward. We've been looking at all the different directions. That's why we've called it 360-degree giving. But I want, to, I want to end this series with looking at this widow. And what I want to do is I want to give you some backdrop. This is an incredibly fascinating passage. And then at the end of that backdrop, once I give you the context, we're going to look at four principles to generous giving that we're going to close with. You know, the most vulnerable, or what we say today, the most exposed people in the first century of Israel were the widows and the fatherless, or the orphans. And there have always been people who take advantage of them. And many of the religious leaders of the Jews, they were no exception. They were taking advantage of the widows. And we're going to see it in our passage today. Look at verse 38. Beware of the scribes, Jesus says, who devour widows' houses. That's a pretty strong warning. The scribes are the religious elite. They're the leaders, the pastoral leaders of the Jewish people. And Jesus gave this warning during what we call today Passion Week. And then he walks into the temple courts and look at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Now listen, if you're going to be a student of God's word, which is one of my major goals for this church, I want all of you studying God's Word, not just merely reading it. The reading of the Word of God is important. It is wonderful. It works like water passing through your heart. It just dislodges hardness. It dislodges sin and starts to wash it clean. But when you study the Word of God, when you meditate on the Word of God day and night, you're going to be like a tree, Psalm 1 says, that's planted by streams of water. Now get the imagery. You're going to bear fruit in its season. Whatever you're going to do prospers. Your leaf will not wither 
but not so the wicked. Listen, if you want to grow, if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to get strong to overcome sin, and you want to get strong to be able to work in a context when you've got a very unfair boss or very difficult co-workers, or you live next to a family that is very difficult to live next to, well, if you want to grow strong, you want to mature, you've got to love the Word of God. You've got to read it, and you've got to do more than that. You've got to study the Word of God. So we're going to look at this passage, but we're not going to jump into it. We're going to look at the context. And I hope to teach you today, I hope to teach you some background that you're going to find, I hope, interesting. So let me describe for you a little about the temple. You are in first century. You're there in 30 AD, 33 AD. The, the temple is almost finished. It's not going to be finished for a few more years, but it is almost finished. It is the most beautiful temple in, in, in antiquity. And you're there. And you're not only in the temple, but I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to teach you a little bit about its treasury system. Listen to this. This is Josephus. Josephus was a Jew. He was employed by Rome. So he wrote historian books or history books about the Jews. And he wrote this. The whole of the outer works of the temple were completely covered in gold plates. Now, can you imagine that? Picture you're there. Picture the sun in dazzling brilliance reflecting off these gold plates, which glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than when one gazed at the sun's rays themselves. This is the temple. This is the temple of God. And Herod, who had it built, and Herod was no godly man, but Herod wanted to please the Jews. He wanted to bring fame to his own name. So he had this temple complex built, greatly expanding the footprint architecturally of Solomon's temple. And it was beautiful. It was massive. Now, you want to know how big the temple complex was? It was 35 acres in size. Now, if you've been to the land that we own in Lower Nazareth Township called Gradwell Switch Property. That's 39 acres. I've stood in that, on that land many, many times. I know how big it is. This is four acres shy of that massive plot. This is 35 acres in size. Now listen, you've got the western wall. Now, if you want to get into the temple, by the way, let me just give you some directions, some navigational beacons. Then you come in usually through the eastern gate. By the way, the Muslims today, they know the prophecy that the Son of Man will come through that eastern gate to take up his messianic rule. So they built a, a cemetery outside that eastern gate. If you get to Israel or if you Google it, you can find it. On the pictures, there's a cemetery right outside this gate. They boarded it up. They're trying to prevent the Messiah from coming back. They want to reign with their religion. But you got to get through the eastern gate, and you're going to head straight into the temple. You're going to straight into the holy place and the most holy place. But behind that is the western wall. The western wall is nearly 1,500 feet long. Now, in your mind, picture five football fields. The length of five football fields, that's just the western wall. That's just one side of the temple complex. 
This is how big it is. The temple, the part where it's the holy place and the most holy place, it's between 10 and 16 stories tall. This thing is massive. You think of our building and our parking lot, and you've got the Haver building, and that's only a few stories tall. Think 10 to 16 stories tall. And as you visit the temple, you're going to walk up a set of stairs until you ascend about 30 feet to the Temple Mount. And when you get to the Temple Mount, you're now going to enter through a very low wall into the court of Gentiles. That's as far as you could go if you're a Gentile. A Gentile is a non-Jewish person. A non-Jew, you can only get into the court of Gentiles. You can't go any further. In fact, on the wall in several spots is a warning. There's a warning and it reads like this and it's written in Greek and Latin so everybody could have read it. It says, no man of another nation is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple and whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. That was a warning. That's as far as you could go. In fact, King Herod, the king of the Jews, was only half Jew, half Edomian, and he could only go this far. He couldn't even go beyond the court of the Gentiles. And that wall that divides the court of the Gentiles from the next court in is called the, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul refers to it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. But you're there, and you're a Jew, and you can proceed further. So you now go into the temple complex. You go inside the court of the Gentiles. You now enter into the court of women. And the court of women, now listen, look at how, listen how big this is. It's in the shape of a square. And each side of the square is 233 feet long. It's able to hold 6,000 worshipers. And it's, called, it's not called the court of the women because only women can go there. Both men and women can be there. It's restricted. For, that's as far as women can go. They cannot go further inside the temple complex than the court of women. Now they could go up on the balcony that oversees the court of Israel. They could go up in the balcony, but they can't go any further than the court of women. And in this court were four nearly 90 feet tall lampstands, 86 feet high. They provided lighting at night. There was always to be light, never to be darkness in the temple complex. But in this court of women, there were four chambers. Now think how big these are. Each chamber is in the four corners of that court. And each chamber is 60 feet to a side and built into a square. And they had purposes. And one of those chambers, they stored the wood for the sacrifice. sacrifices. One of those uh, chambers is where people, if they, felt, if they believed they had leprosy. And by the way, leprosy covered every form of skin infection. And if you felt that you were healed of your leprosy, oftentimes the skin infection cleared up, then you would go into the court of women, into this chamber to be examined by a priest. It was almost like a, an emergency room, examined by a priest. And if it had indeed cleared up, then you would pay for a sacrifice. You would pay, make an offering and the priest would pronounce you clean. That's the purpose of that chamber. 
But there's two more chambers to go. One of those was a chamber for those who had completed a Nazarite vow. And there's another chamber that stored the wine and the oil for the drink offerings. And at one point was the meeting place for the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the ruling council for the Jews. That was where the authority, they made judgment calls in that room. But the favorite way, now here's where we start to get to Jesus. We're going to work our way there. The favorite way from the court of Gentiles into the court of women was on the eastern side through a gate called the beautiful gate. Now I want you to hear this. This gate was built out of folding doors. Now listen to the size. They were each 75 feet high and 40 feet wide. They required 20 men to close it. They were covered with gold and Corinthian brass. I mean, listen, friends, you've got to understand the beauty and the majesty of the temple. It was unlike any other building on the earth. And through this gate, the Jews would pour, and it, would, and it may very well have been on a bench just inside the court of women, just through that gate that Jesus sat, and he observed what we're about to study. And Luke says, in his account, he says that Jesus looked up, meaning that something caught his attention. Look at verse 41 in Mark. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched. Well, he's inside the court of women. Now hear this. There were benches that you could sit down on. But there were 13 trumpet-shaped treasury boxes. Remember the shofar was a ram's horn, so it would have a smaller opening at the top and it would spiral down into a wooden box. And these were treasury boxes. They were built into the wall, and it was called the treasury. And by the way, the word treasure, treasury is taken from two Greek words that mean treasury in prison. They were safes. They captured the money. Once you drop your money in there, they captured the money, the coins, and they locked them up securely. And each treasury box had a designation. And they only received Jewish coins. This is why they had money-changing stations in the court of Gentiles. You can't bring Roman money. You can't bring foreign currency into the temple. That was not allowed. You had to take that foreign currency and exchange it to shekels or Jewish money. And, and coins were minted. They weren't like our coins, perfectly round. They're very irregular. And the heavier the coin, the more value the coin. But only Jewish coins could be put into these trumpet boxes, so the need for these money changers. And a shekel, by the way, if you want to know how much a shekel valued, was valued at, a shekel was about the average uh, money that a Jewish laborer made a month. They made around 12 shekels a year. So a half shekel, and by the way, there was an annual temple tax. When you come into this temple, this is the Passover feast. This is the Feast of Tabernacle. This is where Jesus is right now on the calendar of the Jews. And you've got to bring with you a half shekel. That's the annual tax that the Jews had to pay. That paid for the priests. That paid for the services of the temple, the upkeep. 
but a half shekel was what you had to put into the treasury box. Now, we're not even including voluntary gifts. We're not including uh, money for offerings that you would pay. These are, this is just the temple tribute of a half shekel. So a half shekel was about a two-week paycheck. And listen, if you're over 20, man or woman, if you're over 20 years old, you had to pay that every year. In fact, you get to Matthew 17, 24. Do you remember that story of the tax collector coming to Peter and saying to Peter, has your master paid his temple tax? And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, go take a rod, a fishing rod, and throw it into the water. And the first fish that you catch inside will be a four drachma, one shekel coin. And Peter indeed caught a fish, and inside the fish's mouth was a coin. And that paid for his and our Lord's temple tribute for that year. So you've got these 13 trumpet boxes, and this is, I don't know if you think this is fascinating. I think this is really fascinating. Every one of those trumpet boxes had a purpose. You could choose which one you wanted to give to. They didn't all go into the same fund. Trumpet boxes one and two, that's where you put your temple tax. Trumpet three were for the women who were so poor. Think Mary when she had Jesus. This is where she would have gone to put her offering, and they would have given her turtle doves to give to the priest for a sacrifice. This is for women, trumpet three, so poor that they could only afford the amount of what a turtle dove would cost. Trumpet four was for the amount for an offering of young pigeons. And trumpet five, they were placed contributions for the wood that you were using in the temple. Come on, you, you had to burn wood for all these sacrifices. Took a lot of wood. Trumpet six, box number six, was for the incense that they burned in the temple complex. Trumpet seven funded the golden vessels for the ministry of the priests. They had, at, at this time, they had about 24,000 priests, and they all served two weeks, one week at a time, two weeks a year. So that trumpet number seven was for the golden vessels for the ministry of the priests. Into trumpet eight, when any money left over after a man set aside a certain amount of money for a sin offering. Trumpets 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 were placed, uh, they were placed with what was left over from sin offerings, offerings of birds, those taking Nazarite vows, those cleansed of skin infections, voluntary offerings of generosity. They captured those offerings. And then those monies that were in the wooden treasury chests, they were taken at specific times to the treasure chamber. And near that chamber, now listen to this, this is interesting. Near that chamber was a chamber of the silence. It's called the chamber of the silence where devout worshipers could give money just for the education of the children of the poor. So we're in the court of the women. Jesus is on a bench. He's near the treasury boxes and he's watching. Now get back to your text. Many rich people put in large sums. Now, these shofars, these treasury boxes, I told you had an opening at the top and it widened into a treasury box, a wooden box. But the, the actual spiraling shofar was made out of brass. So you take these irregularly shaped coins and if you throw it in just right and it spirals down and it 
creates a cacophonous echo around the chamber of that massive court. And if you're really rich and you've got a fistful of coins and heavy coins, shekels and half shekels that have a lot of value and a lot of weight to them, and you fling them into those treasury boxes and all the eyes snap up because this is someone giving so much to God. And then verse 42, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And when we read of that widow, now listen, I don't know what you do when you're studying the word of God, but you've got to look for little connectors. You've got to look for bridges. Where did you just read about widows? Where did we just read about widows? You've got to go back to the first part of 38 through 40. We just read about widows, and we read about this widow, and all of a sudden our eyes go back to what Jesus had just preached. Now let's read it again. And in his teaching, verse 38, he said, Beware of the scribes. They like to walk around in these long robes and they like greetings in the marketplaces and they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts and they devour widows' houses. There's our widow bridge. And for a pretense, make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, who were scribes? Now, we're going to get to these four principles of generous giving. How do you give in a way that's going to amaze God? How do you give sacrificially and amaze God? We're going to get to that, but I'm going to give you a little more context. Scribes were self-proclaimed experts in the law, and most of them were Pharisees. They were Jewish lawyers. I haven't met too many lawyers in my life. They're kind of scary. We actually hired one on staff. He's your campus pastor. He's not very scary because he's actually nice. But these are lawyers. They're Jewish lawyers. They're experts in the law. That's what a scribe was. And they had these long and these opulent robes and these full-length prayer shawls that would go around the back of the neck and the tassels on the end would scrape the ground. And the longer the prayer shawl, the more righteous you appeared. And so they would bring them so long and they were showy and they trumpeted their self-importance. They demanded that when you see them, now listen, you're in Israel, you're in Jerusalem, you're walking down the street, and here comes a scribe. They demanded that you greet them. They didn't give you the option, and if you did not greet them favorably, the way that they felt they deserved, they would give you a stern rebuke. In fact, William Barclay wrote of a written record that has been recovered of two offended rabbis. They were upset because several people on the street greeted them with, quote, may your, great, may your peace be great, unquote. But they didn't add, my masters. So they were offended, and Barclay explained that scribes taught that respect for a teacher should rank above that for a father, and that if both a teacher and a father were to lose everything in life, well, the student should help the teacher before the father. That's what they taught. Rabbis were filled with a craving for power and fame and wealth and respect. 
Their prayers were long and their prayers were wordy. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, when he teaches us how to pray, do not pray like the Pharisees. Do not pray as if God didn't hear you the first time. Just pray and let, say before God and move on. Their prayers were long and they were wordy and they demanded the elevated seats on the platforms of synagogues and they prayed on the most helpless members of society, widows. And now we return to Jesus. He's in the court of women. He's sitting opposite the treasury. Those 13 treasury boxes in a row built into the wall. He's sitting there on a bench. It's Passover week. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. By the way, the population of Jerusalem was almost always normally 80,000 people. But Josephus, remember Jewish historian, says that during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover, right now where Jesus is, it swells to 2.7 million people. In fact, a Roman census tallied that amount during the Passover. 2.7 million Jews, and they're cramming into the temple to bring their offerings. Suddenly, Jesus sees a poor widow who put into a treasury box two small copper coins. You know what he does? I look at your text. He calls his disciples over. Did you get that? I think we missed that. This is so important. This is so amazing. He is marveling at this. He says to his disciples, now listen, you're one of his disciples. I'm one of his disciples. You're in the temple of God. There are 2.7 million people coming into the city. You are excited. You are worshiping God. And you're in the court of women. And you can begin to see from the court of women, the court of Israel, the court of priests, the holy place, the most holy place. You can see the temple that goes 10 to 16 stories tall. It is beautiful. It's amazing. And you're wandering around this 233 foot on a side square. And Jesus beckons you back to the bench because he wants to show you what a poor widow just did. And his comments to them provide for us four lessons and amazingly generous giving here's the first you ready this is where we begin to interpret what i've just done was give you one of three parts of serious studying of the bible we've we've observed you got observation you've got interpretation then you've got application we've just done observation now we're going to get into interpretation he says this or rather here's the principle amazing giving is all about our hearts now, that might sound anticlimactic to you. That might sound kind of a letdown. There's nothing significant about that. But let's sort of extract that. This entire series has aimed at our hearts. It's meant to free us to generosity. Listen, life is not all about the base. It is all about the heart. Amen? Jesus sat there in this massive square, the court of the women. He's on a bench and he's watching. And look at verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury and he watched people putting money into the offering box. Now listen, imagine, if you would, now look at me for a moment. Just imagine. We took the offering today. 
And I followed the ushers right down the aisle, and I'm watching every single one of you just to watch what you're going to put into that plate or into that basket. How would you feel? Wouldn't that be awkward at best and intrusive and irritating at work? At worst, but yet our Lord, our God, our master who owns everything and has a right to it all because it's his, he watches. He watched the rich give. He watched the, the widow give. And there's nothing unfair about it. There's nothing unjust about it. He's God. And a good principle for us to glean is that God does actually watch what we give. It matters to him. But what he looks for is not the amount that we give. He looks at the heart of the giver. Now, did you hear that? What he looks for is not the amount of the giver. He's looking at the heart of the giver. And it's in full view for him because he's working, Christian brother and sister, he's working to unlock our hearts from greed and coveting and fear. And he's working to, be, to make us become generous givers. He, not just, he just doesn't notice. He actively watches what each of us gives, not just at church, but in our lives. Yes, with our time, and yes, with our talents, but he watches what we give with our money, too. He's very interested in his children becoming incredibly generous givers. But there's another principle. Amazing giving is all about sacrifice. Now, I really want you to hear this. This is probably perhaps the core of this entire message. The idea of Jesus being amazed. Now listen, what would cause him to tell his disciples to come back to the bench? It wasn't the rich. It was the widow. And the idea of Jesus being amazed, it's not new. For the, do you remember the Roman centurion amazed Christ with his faith, Matthew 8, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said, the word marvel means amazed, and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He wasn't even a Jew. He's a Roman centurion. Jesus was amazed at this guy's faith. And then negatively, Mark 6 says, Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled or he was amazed because of their unbelief. So Jesus can be amazed. He could be amazed positively. He could be amazed negatively. And the widow amazed him positively. I mean, remember the disciples? They are no doubt kind of scattered at this point when he's on the bench. I mean, this is an exciting time. They're caught up in the excitement of the temple, the worshipers, the imminent Passover, and he calls them over and he says to them, look at verse 33, truly, look at verse 44, she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now listen, let's be a little bit Let's dig a little bit here. Truly, look at your Bibles. Truly is the word amen. 
It was a Hebrew word. It was brought directly without transliteration, without being changed into the Greek. And then it was brought directly into our English. This is exactly what the word amen looks like in the Hebrew and in the Greek. Truly, amen, Jesus says. She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. Listen, when amen, or when truly, or verily, if your Bible has it, is used at the beginning of a sentence, it means to emphasize the truth of that statement. But when it's used at the end, like we do, then it's meant to convey confidence and conviction and agreement with a statement. Jesus is the only New Testament writer that ever uses truly at the beginning of a statement. And he uses it, and when he doubles it, truly, truly, or verily, verily, he is astonished. He is making sure you listen, because what he's about to say is emphatically important. He says, amen, she gave. It's drawing a lot of attention to this poor widow and her offering. And it would be easy to misunderstand that Jesus wants every one of us to clean out our bank accounts and give it all to our church. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's teaching. That's not what we ought to do unless God is moving you to do it. Don't be like Creflo Dollar. If you've been watching the news, word, faith, prosperity teacher who wants his church to buy him and pay for a brand new $65 million jet for his ministry. Listen, Jesus is not after your money. He's after your heart. Can we give sacrificially, not because we're compelled through manipulation and guilt, but because we are moved to give sacrificially by the power of his grace that works inside of us to love those in need? What is sacrificial giving? Okay, so he's in the court of the, gent of, the, of the women. He's on a bench. He's opposite the treasury. 13 shofar, trumpet-based treasury boxes. All of them with a designation. And you can't help but remember, wait a minute. Back in David's day, this was nothing but a field. Actually, not a field like we think. It was a rocky plateau. And it once belonged to Arana the Jebusite. And he used it for a threshing floor. He took the pitchfork and he threw the wheat up in the air. And the heavy grain kernel came down and the chaff, the useless part, blew away. It's at the top of a mountain. That's why you go up to Jerusalem. You're always going uphill. So he's beating the Jebusite, the grain. He's beating the wheat. He's dislodging the kernel. He's throwing it in the air. He's getting the chaff to blow away. And then he collects it, pounds it, makes it into bread. And David says, wait a minute. That's a perfect site for the temple that I want to build to God. And Arana says, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the oxen that I use to grow that wheat, and I'll give you the ox cart that you can use for the wood of your sacrifice. And David says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. That's sacrificial giving. 
C.S. Lewis teaches us what sacrificial giving is. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Now, are you hearing this? This ought to be making us uncomfortable. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. That's sacrificial giving. One of my kids has a friend whose parents both work and they make a lot of money and they give him everything he wants. We have a rule in our family that if you're going to get your driver's license and it's going to make our car insurance go up $75 a month, that's what it does, then you've got to pay the $75 a month. And one of my sons doesn't think that's fair or he didn't think that's fair. And he says, Dad, why can't you pay for it like my friends? Well, what I haven't told them yet, and I probably need to sit down and explain it to them, is we probably wouldn't pay for it, even if we could, because I think it's a good lesson. But secondly, we can't afford it because we give money to the Lord. We give sacrificially. You give sacrificially, a lot of you. Listen, when you give sacrificially to the Lord, not just to Cornerstone, but to missionaries, to ministries, we only give where it's going to further the gospel. When you do that... You're not going to be able to be compared to the unsaved people. They're going to be able to do things and buy things and go on vacations that you're not going to be able to go to. And that's okay. That's sacrificial giving. Give it up. You're going to inherit riches in heaven. Is your giving sacrificial for the purposes of God's kingdom? Are you giving sacrificially and is it preventing you from doing things you'd like to do? If so, listen, you're going to amaze Jesus. But there's two more principles and I'm going to move a little quicker. Amazing giving, number three, is not measured by amount. Look at verse 43. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. Did you hear what Jesus said? Of all those thousands, 2.7 million pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, all the half shekels that everybody over 20 years old is giving, hers out gave all of theirs. Did you see that? But she only gave, look at verse 42, she only gave two small copper coins or two leptas in the Hebrew. A lepton, now listen, this is interesting, is one 128th of a denarius, and a denarius was what a common laborer earned a day. So one of her coins was 128th of the amount that a common laborer earned a day. Two of them was one sixty-fourth of the amount. Now let's do a little math. 
Let's say that in Pennsylvania, which it is, a minimum wage, $7.25 an hour, and you work an eight-hour day, that's $58. One sixty-fourth of that equals 91 cents in today's standard. That's all she had to her name. She put 91 cents comparatively into the treasury box, and Jesus was amazed. Listen, sacrificial giving, amazing giving is not measured by an amount. A lepton was, you know what it means in the Hebrew language? It means in the Greek language, it means a shaving or a peel. It's such a thin piece of metal, it's almost bendable. It's like tin. Here's all of these half shekels. Here's all of these fistfuls of heavy coins being dumped into the treasury box. And she puts her two coins in and you wouldn't have heard it if your ear was right next to it. And what is ultimately amazing is that it's exactly how Jesus gave of himself. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That's sacrificial giving. You know why Jesus loved this widow's giving? Do you know why this amazed him? Because she gave like God. She gave in a way that pointed to the generosity of Jesus. But there's one final principle. Amazing giving must be about the grace of God. You know, last week in our sermon, we saw that the grace of God, we saw the grace of God in the extremely poor saints in Macedonia. And that phrase, the grace of God, now hang with me, I'm almost done. That phrase, grace of God, referred to their generous gift that resulted from God's grace that was at work within them. In other words, God's grace is at work within them and it's erupting in generosity. This is what the grace of God does. But the system of Judaism, friends, listen, it's not built on grace. It's built on works. Those scribes taught works-based salvation and there is no such thing. You cannot get saved by works. By the grace of God through faith. The scribes created this system. You know what they taught? They taught that if you, if you wanted salvation, you can purchase it. And if you wanted God's blessings, then you can buy them with money. They taught this. And they viewed widows, according to John MacArthur, as being under the judgment of God. That's why they're a widow. So the scribes would aid God by placing burdens on them and making life tough for them. Why? Because if God's cursed you, elderly widow, then we're going to curse you. It was a wretched, terrible system. And they taught, if you want to get out of God's judgment, widow, then you've got to make an offering. Listen, generosity can't save you. You can give every bit of money you have, and it will not bring you any closer to salvation. It is through the gift that Jesus gave, not anything you can give to God. Generosity doesn't save anyone. It springs from a heart of somebody who has been saved. And what a terrible system Judaism was. They devoured widows. They manipulated them with a false promise that if you gave enough, you can satisfy the holy demands of God. And there's here, listen, in this contrast between the rich people putting money into those treasuries and these little shaving coins that the widow puts in, there's a rebuke that Jesus is giving to the scribes for devouring widows. 
Giving cannot be compelled by external pressure. It's got to be impelled by the grace of God. You've got to want to give. And that's the aim of the gospel. Amazing giving has to be about the grace of God. Amen.